Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm stand-up comedian James Mullinger and the co-founder of Edit Magazine. This is Mullinger Meets Canadians, the podcast where we meet Canadians who are making waves on the world stage. In this episode, I'll be speaking with one of my favourite people in the whole world, the unstoppable Candy Palmer. The Canadian comedian and broadcaster is the creator of the hit TV series The Candy Show and host of the CBC interview series The Candy Palmer Show. Undeniably one of this country's greatest talents, she once described herself as a gay, native, recovered lawyer turned feminist comic who was raised by bikers in the wilds of northern New Brunswick. But even that unique title doesn't quite do justice to the versatility and intelligence of this incredible performer, artist, thinker, and now author. Born in 1968 in New Brunswick, she grew up the youngest of seven children. In 1996, she went to Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia to study law and graduated in 1999 as the valedictorian of her class. She was the first Aboriginal law student in Canada to be valedictorian of her graduating class. Shortly after, she began working for a law firm, then realised this wasn't for her and left her job to launch her show business career. And the rest, as they say, is history. She currently resides in Toronto, Ontario with her wife and manager Denise and that's where she's zooming in from today. She's an inspiration to many for a wide variety of reasons. She's been hugely successful with virtual performances throughout 2020 and now 2021 and she's currently writing a book. We've worked together on numerous projects including CBC's The Debaters and she always brings much joy to my life. But this is the first time I've been able to grill her about her life and work. And I can't bloody wait. Let's do this. Candy, how are you? I am wonderful. I mean, I'm relatively wonderful. You know, I'm an extrovert that's been in lockdown for 10 months, so... (laughs) I'm going a little bit crazy, but other than that, I'm I'm doing pretty well. That's beautiful. I mean, you're right. I mean, we are all all going crazy. But as you say, I mean, our industry more than any other has been uh, so kind of incredibly affected. And I loved an interview that I, I heard you do a few years ago where you talked about how your whole life is about change and transformation. Could you ever have imagined how much change and transformation would need to take place in the past 12 months? I, I have always anticipated a personal need for a change and transformation. So I've, you know, I have arthritis and I've always kind of in my mind thought, now there may come a day where you're so crippled, you can't travel. You know, what are you going to do then? I had all these plans in place. Not once did I think there could come a day when the entire planet shuts down. That was right. not in my what if list. I, so that really kind of took me by surprise. Yeah. I mean, and it's weird to think that this time a year ago, we weren't even, uh, I mean, some people who are very well read would have heard the word COVID-19, but but I mean, I certainly hadn't. I had no idea I was making big plans for the year. And then suddenly, and then and then obviously in March, I think most of us, especially in, in our industry, we kind of thought that things would be back to normal by the end of last year, but that hasn't happened. So how have you, how have you kind of, for want of a, I'm trying to avoid using that awful word pivot, but but how has the uh, the pivoting been going and, and that kind of shift to virtual and other ways of doing things? That word pivot is on my COVID <laughs> bingo sheet um, for every time I have a conversation. Um, yes. Along with unprecedented and... Uh... <laughs> my, you know, my year for 2020 was starting off with a huge bang. I was ready to kick the decade off. And um, my ego, even though I had heard COVID, my ego did not allow me to accept the possibility that it was going to affect me in Canada. So I can actually remember specifically the morning of March 13th. 
I was in my hairdresser's chair. They were asking me, are you worried about this COVID? I said, no, no, no. All my gigs are in Canada. I'm booked solid. I'm going to be fine. That afternoon, I went to the studio to record a piece of narration for a television series I narrate. And my engineer said to me, I think we're going to be affected. I said, no, no, no. We're in Canada. We'll be fine. And I was supposed to be leaving for Saskatoon the next day for a gig. I got home and Denise, who is my wife and manager, said Saskatoon just canceled. I said, what? They can't cancel. I have never had anybody cancel on me in my entire career. <laughs> and within 24 hours, uh, about $40,000 worth of work just disappeared. So I had this horrible feeling of, oh my goodness, what if I go broke? Even worse, what if I have to be a lawyer again? Because that would be horrible. And then two or three days later, when I realized how serious this was, my new worry was, oh my God, what if I die? I could die from this. <laughs> right, that, was th that was second on the list of worries. But, but it quickly went to number one. And I went online. I saw all these people talking about how so-and-so wrote their greatest book during the Black Plague. And so-and-so did this and did that. And people saying, oh, I'm going to lose 100 pounds during COVID. I'm going to, listen, I have one goal. When this is over, if I am alive, I have one. That's, that's it and that's all. I just want to stay alive. So I really got my head in that space, like stay healthy, stay as far away from people as you can, and things will work themselves out. And sure enough, I feel like within a month or two, I had about a month or two of nothing, and then I started to book up really solidly. But it's all been from my bedroom. So I've been doing television from my bedroom, radio from my bedroom. I hosted 1,000 accountants from across the country over three days from my bedroom. So while it is lovely to have an income as an extrovert who has lived my life in the public eye, like I think I was seven the last time I wasn't on stage in front of people, um, I'm going crazy. I miss my audience horribly, horribly. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it that that human connection can can never be be replaced. But clearly, you embraced the 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 need for virtual, but also clearly got and are very good at it. And and I think that was one of the fascinating things was that transition out of you know the first few months where people were uh, happy with a fairly basic virtual setup and to a very kind of professional place where as you say i mean you're doing national tv shows from there you're doing big corporate gigs there's a need to 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 do it in a in a way that would be uh, up there with any other performance how did you kind of learn that craft i had a youtube channel prior to this not a huge youtube channel like i have i don't know eight nine thousand followers so i i did have some equipment already and was accustomed to doing videos at home. But for me, what was really the, um, the instigator, it wasn't even work. I am the youngest of seven kids and my brothers and sisters are about 20 on average, 20 years older than me. And they're all married with kids and grandkids and I'm very close to them, but they all live in New Brunswick and I go up there constantly. And I was just about to go. I was supposed to spend April, 2020, the entire month, on the Palmetto compound in Pointland in New Brunswick. And then this happened. And my panic was, I cannot survive without my siblings. So I quickly asked people, what's the best platform, the easiest for 70 year olds who don't know much about computers. <laughs> Everybody suggested Zoom. I taught my brothers and sisters how to Zoom. And then I just started telling them every Friday night at six o'clock New Brunswick time, we're having a family hangout. And I quickly realized it's frustrating when you can't see somebody. So I pulled my ring light out and and I had this blue snowball microphone for about three years and I'd never used it. So, <laughs> so the first time I did the social, they said, you got to dig that microphone out. So I dug <laughs> that out. And then I asked the tech person, I seem to be freezing. Can you help me? She told me I needed this cord to hardwire my computer. So I don't have a good sense of direction. So I got on the phone to order the cord and the guy said, how much cord do you need? I said about a hundred feet. I live in a <laughs> Toronto apartment. So I now have enough cord to actually run to New Brunswick. Yeah. I quickly realized the shiny pictures behind my head were reflecting my ring light. I moved those out. I moved some other things in. It's been kind of like 
trial and error, you know? But what I've been loving is I get my hair fluffed up, I get my false eyelashes on, and I'm in my underwear. I have not yeah. worn pants in a year. And I absolutely <laughs> love that. That's beautiful. And we can't do that with live live performance. So so there are some benefits to this period. I'm trying to look <laughs> at the silver lining. <laughs> That's it. Obviously, obviously, we're hoping that things, you know, everyone in the world gets vaccinated and everything goes back to, to normal. But do you think that there's any future in virtual shows even after things go back to normal? I think a handful of people are going to try to save money by mm, continuing yeah. to go virtual. But yeah. I, you know, I, a little while ago, I had, I had said to my manager, I'm really worried about never being kissed or hugged again. And I put yeah. together a picture montage. When I do keynotes, my keynotes are very emotional. Mm -hmm. And I get kissed and hugged all the time afterwards. And I put this photo montage together of like hundreds of strangers kissing and hugging me. Yeah. And I said to Denise, if I can't, if, if the rest of my life does not include this, um, you know, that's going to affect my emotional health. And right. she said to me, People see you sometimes once a year and they still stand in a lineup to kiss and hug you. Mm. You have not been available to anybody for now a year. You don't think people are going to line up for that again? And I thought, yeah. you know, she's right. I have to trust that they love me as much as I love them. Yeah. And that when this is done, as cautious as we might be, we are all going to be craving being together in a room again. So I don't think that it is going to turn into a full-time forever virtual situation. Yeah. But there have been a couple of things, like I did a keynote for a university for a student body. They would have never been able to afford my fee, my regular fee, flying me, putting me up in a hotel. Right. Because this was only going to be an hour out of my time in my room, um, I gave them a discount. They got a local pizza shop to to chip in with them. And uh, it was the first time I ever did a keynote with a pizza sign behind me. But it's appropriate. <laughs> pizza is my favorite food. Um, so nice. I, I really appreciated that. And the students were all stuck in their rooms instead of at Frosh Week. And I asked them if they would just put their cameras on so that I could see them. And I scrolled through them throughout the hour as I was speaking so I could see their reactions and it was a lovely moment where i thought you know they wouldn't have been able to afford this in reality and yeah. since we're all stuck at home it was uh my alma mater it was beautiful to be able to talk to those students um as they're starting the year and kind of try to pump them up despite the fact that it wasn't going to be your typical frosh week yeah that, that that's so true and i mean I've, I've had similar experiences and and one of the one of the pieces of feedback that i started to get last summer from people when it was you know uh, say a teaching organization and it might have been a a wellness event or, or 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 any one of these things i would get messages from people saying that they don't normally go on the work outings either because they're shy or because of financial reasons or maybe they care for someone at home and that this was the first time they had actually been included and in, and in, in, essentially attended one of these work events and, and in some cases the first time they've, they've ever seen live comedy or albeit virtually it's um it's a bit fascinating isn't it it really is and and people are being very inventive when i hosted the three-day conference with the accountants they had um they reached out to a company called tk designs and it was an actual conference center so when you opened up the link you were in the lobby of a conference center. There were people walking around, people sitting down. You could see the receptionist if you needed to ask questions. You walked through the main door. There I was on the main stage to greet you in the morning. Then when you wow. went through breakout sections, you literally went through the exit, went back out into the lobby, went into whatever door you wanted. At the breaks, you could walk through the yoga door. And there was a yoga teacher there teaching you some things to do while still seated in your chair to help loosen you up. <laughs> There was all the musicians whom were uh, clients of this accounting firm at the lunch break. They were in separate rooms playing music live for everybody. So, wow. you know, was it was it being there? No, it wasn't the same as being there, but it was pretty exciting and it felt very, very real. So I think when when people do that, you know, go that extra mile to really make it feel real. It was wonderful. Yeah. We could share pictures with one another, chat back and forth with one another. It was really set up quite well. 
That's magical. As you say, I mean, I think just just companies and, and performers, everyone's realising that we need to rise to the occasion. People aren't going to accept things being not as good just because it's virtual. Um, I, I thought found it fascinating what you were saying about obviously your keynote speeches and, and clearly how much they, they touch people because that's one of the things that I've always loved so much about your comedy, that it is... Uh, it, it always has heart and, and depth and, and warmth to it. Is that something that you kind of consciously think of when you're writing uh, monologues or stand-up or, or any type of comedy? Uh, how and why does it have so much kind of heart to it? Yeah, from the very beginning, I decided that, um, you know, I always tell people, if you come to see me do comedy, you mm. never have to worry about being picked on. You never have to worry about being uncomfortable as I pick on somebody else in the crowd. I will never pick on somebody in the crowd. If you come to see me do comedy, you are going to blush, though, because I am <laughs> going to talk about my 87-year-old, now-departed mother's clitoris. That happens. <laughs> but I wanted my comedy to, to be the same as my keynotes in terms of I want it to send a clear message. Yeah. I want it to be funny. I want it to push boundaries but I don't want to hurt anybody. And nice, I want people yeah. to leave feeling better than they came in. And for me, there was a moment that I always think about, I guess two moments. Firstly, at the very beginning of my comedy career, um, Stephen Harper had signed the residential school agreement. And I got a call from the Atlantic Policy Congress saying that all the survivors in Atlantic Canada were going to be brought together and they were going to um, have to recount over three days with all these government people what had happened to them in residential school. And then they said, we'd like you to come in on the final night and do comedy because we don't want to send them home raw. And I said, <laughs> oh, my God, I, I appreciate the call, but I, I don't think this is a fit. Uh, thanks anyway. And I hung up. And then one of the elders called me and she said, look, humor is how we have survived all these horrific things. And if that is the gift that you have been given, then that is what you owe us. So when an elder says that to you, you put your things in the car and you drive to Moncton. <laughs> and I did my set and it was a fantastic set. And there were about 500 people in the room. And I asked everybody at the end, could we not clap for the comedy? Could all of us who are not survivors stand and acknowledge the survivors in the room? So there was a big thunderous standing ovation and then one by one, the survivors were coming to me and saying, oh, you don't know me, but I'm a huge fan of yours. I watch you on EPTN all the time. And then they were hugging me. And when they were hugging me, they were whispering in my ear. I did 10 years at Shuby. I did five years. Like they were all telling me how long they had been in residential school. And wow. by the time I got in the car, I was bawling. I cried all the way home to Halifax. And when I was laying in bed with my wife that night, I said to her, tonight I learned how serious this funny business is. Right. And that's when I really sort of decided, okay, I am going to be a certain type of comic and I am not going to go to Yuck Yucks. And I, there's all kinds of young 25-year-old white guys to tell jokes for those guys. <laughs> I am going to tell the jokes that only I can tell to the people who don't usually have jokes that run in their favor. And right. then I was sitting in a bar after the Halifax Comedy Festival one year with my mother. She was visiting. And some young, what I would call white frat boys came in, right? About 25, 24, 25 year old white guys, about eight of them. Hmm. And one of them spotted me and said, oh my God, Candy Palmer. And he came over and he shook my hand. And he said, I brought my boys to your show at the comedy festival last week on the blue night. And I told them, oh, she's a potty mouth, man. She'll definitely be blue. We got to go see her. Because their complaint sometimes is that the blue nights are not quite as blue as they would like them to be. And so both my language and my content on the blue night is, it's extreme. Yeah. And then he said, and you know, we laughed our heads off. You didn't disappoint. You were so funny. And then that night I was laying in bed and all of a sudden I was thinking about women's issues and native issues. And I was thinking, why am I thinking about this crap? And then I realized you did that, didn't you? And I gave him the biggest hug because I love the fact that he figured it out yeah. that, you know, like my, my favorite joke of mine is a joke that I, that's called vagina augmentation. And it's a super funny joke and it kills every time, but it is a strong feminist statement. So right. it takes a little, I think it takes a little bit of extra work to try to find things that are going to be super funny and appeal to the masses, but that will get you thinking afterwards.
Absolutely. Ultimately, I think, you know, people say, well, you're a storyteller, you're a writer, you're a comedian, you're a keynote. I said, no, I'm a storyteller. That's what mm. I am. Whether I'm doing comedy, whether I'm doing a keynote or whether I'm writing a book or an article, I'm simply telling stories. And that's something I got from my family. So my family finds themselves in it lots. And I feel like when you tell a story that is personal, other people will relate to it. Yeah, so true. And as you say, I mean, during your during your shows, no one is sat there consciously thinking that they are uh, b becoming enlightened or learning something. They're just laughing their asses off. They're just enjoying a show. It's only afterwards that, that, that they realize how much has kind of sunk in from what they've learned. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. And so that's just been what I have decided I wanted to do and that I, I mm. think that there's enough out there to make people feel horrible. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, one of the things I love is, particularly when I do corporate gigs, it's usually men that are comics. And I had a corporate gig here in Toronto before I moved here. And it was one of these like a thousand dollar a plate things. So it was basically the audience was all middle aged Toronto bankers and their wives. Right. And there was Scott Thompson, me and another male comic. And of course, the male comics went out and they made the kind of jokes, you know, where sometimes the wives get a little bit of a, uh, you know, get bruised around a bit. And I was watching and the men were having the greatest time and the women looked a little bored. And I came to the microphone and I said, look, I'm in menopause. I'm growing a goatee. I'm melting in spot. And I've got no time, okay? I'm going bald downtown, but somehow growing a beard. So don't even think about heckling me because I am in no mood. And as soon as I said I'm going bald downtown, I watched the sphincters of those men just clench up. And as one, all the women in the room leaned forward. And I thought, we're going to have some fun. And afterwards, it was beautiful because I got swamped by these 60-something women saying, oh, my God, we go to these things all the time with our husbands and there's never anything for us. And it was so fun to have something for us and also to watch our husbands being so uncomfortable. <laughs> it was one of those nights I just loved being the only woman on stage. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing to, to em em embrace the difference and embrace the fact that you are giving audiences something which they that they didn't know they needed and 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 they're not going to get anywhere else i mean what what was it do you think about your childhood that that kind of gave you that um that oomph to be able to to do that and uh, as you mentioned that kind of storytelling gene you know i think there's a there's there's a natural storytelling ability within the indigenous community and certainly my family in particular has a wonderful ability to do that. In fact, the first time I ever got paid to, to do comedy, I remember my siblings saying, why would they pay you? You're no, you're no more funny than the rest of us. And I said, yeah, I know, but other families aren't like ours. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it is unique up there in the world. And when I was young, I had a very keen sense of two things. Um, you know, I didn't, I wasn't hungry as a child, but my brothers and sisters were. When when my parents got married, my father was an alcoholic. My father's Mi'kmaq, my mother's white. When they married, my mother lost her family because she, they didn't want her to marry an indigenous man. This was back in the 1940s. And my father was a raging alcoholic. So my brothers and sisters were born in very extreme poverty, very extreme alcoholism. And then in his 30s, my dad found sobriety. And when he died, he was actually 51 years sober. So after 10 wow. years of sobriety, while they were in their 40s, he asked my mom if he could have one more baby that they could raise while he was sober. And that's when I came along. So wow. I was raised in a sober, loving household with adult brothers and sisters who adored me. They could have mm -hmm. been jealous. They could have been resentful. They weren't. They just decided that they were going to shower me with every single thing they did not have. So I was, I have never had a moment in my life that I have not known how loved I am. And I know how unique that is. I know how special that is. I have friends that are rich that I always look at them and I think, oh, you might be rich financially, but I have so much more wealth than you because I know you are in need of that love that I had. So that gave me a lot of self-confidence. And then I figured out really young I was never going to have an auntie die 
and leave me a bunch of money. But as each member of my family dies, the legacy they leave me are their stories. So even as a little girl, I would constantly say, Daddy, tell me that story again of when you got that moose on the 18 mile in the Southeast. Or Daddy, <laughs> tell me that story again of when the man from the bank put you out on the street when you were five and your mom had to take you into the woods and put up a tar paper lean to. Like, tell me those stories again, because I recognized even at that young age that those stories were my legacy. So right. now I am in the middle of writing my first book which is a memoir right now, tentatively called Running Down a Dream. So it's scheduled to come out at the end of 21. And I'd say 50 to 60% of that book are my stories, are my family's stories. That's incredible. Yeah, it's been a lovely like full circle kind of, kind of moment. And nothing like a pandemic to help the writing of a book, of course. <laughs> Except I don't know about anybody else out there, but I am a, I'm a very um, uh, prolific reader. I read 50 to 60 books a year. Last year, I only read 25 books. Wow. I found it really hard to concentrate. And I yeah. was very close to the end of my book, but I went through this stall period where I was, I was saying to my editor, I just can't. I just can't seem to focus my mind on this. And she said, all my writers are in the same spot right now. Interesting. It took us a while to change gears, right? And like just... But also, I mean, we're used to being having being on the road and doing so many things that, you know, it's like that old cliche about, you know, if you want something done in an office, you ask the busy person, you don't ask the, the person that sat there twiddling their thumbs. And it's kind of like that where when we're racing around, like I, I, I find myself if I've got, you know, a, a, a gig in the morning and then some filming in the afternoon, then a gig that night, that night's likely to be the time when I get to a hotel at, at midnight and start writing. Whereas if I'm just at home all day i end up just doing nothing because it stimulates your mind about three months in i woke up one morning and i said to denise how do people wake up in the same bed every day it's so boring i'm so used to waking up in different beds and trying to figure out where the light switch is in the bathroom like you know i'm always on a plane i'm always in a hotel and suddenly i'm just stuck at home looking at the four yeah. walls and i'm i walk on a cane i have extreme arthritis i've had one hip replaced which works wonderfully but i have another hip that is uh way beyond when it needs to be replaced now being on the road all the time even though i'm on the cane and i'm hobbling i'm still moving right. so i stay loose six months into lockdown i realized whoa i am losing everything i am getting very very stiff my balance is going. So I've made a concerted effort in the last bit to really try to consciously just like walk the hallways in my apartment building. Cause I'm in Toronto, right? There's a bazillion mm -hmm. cases. I'm, I'm scared to yeah. go out. I'm scared to, because nobody's wearing their masks. Nobody's staying socially distanced. I'm on a cane. I can't make quick moves. So, right. um, you know, a couple times a day I get all masked up and I just walk the hallways in my building just to try to keep myself, loose and i feel like the same thing that is happening to the body happens to the mind i get stimulated by being around people that's what stimulates yeah. my creativity certainly not sitting in my room looking at the same four walls right i mean it's it it's, it, it must be terrifying being in a place and of course i mean you you've still got so much so much family in new brunswick so you're so you're fully aware of kind of what's happening here and how obviously you know who would have thought we'd be back in a back in a in a lockdown here at this stage but of course i mean it's still nowhere near as bad as it is in ontario what's it like being in a place where uh it really is dangerous out there I'm so scared. Like I, 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 you know, I'm 52 years old. I have asthma. I have high blood pressure. I'm obese. Those are all things that are on the high risk list. So I really don't leave unless I absolutely have to. Um, I have to go tomorrow to the studio to do some recording. They will unlock the door, then step away from it to let me in. I have a bottle right. of spray alcohol that I will spray everything in that sound booth with before I sit down. My wife goes out to get what we need to get. I get most things delivered. But when she goes out, when she comes back in, everything, the clothes come off. She washes the hands. She leaves the mask at the door to be washed because we are just constantly worried about keeping me alive through this. 
So mm. it does feel a bit claustrophobic. And then I get angry because I look outside and I see people standing around with no masks on talking to one another. And I'm like, God, people, this is why we're still in lockdown. Like, it seems so simple. So I did my part by recording three public service announcements um, for actually a First Nation out west, west called uh, Lakota Sioux First Nation. And they are three public service announcements that are funny, but that are saying smarten up. So right. one of them is about how we all love people, but we have to, the campaign is called Protect Your Elders. So I, there's, I show Zooming with my family, celebrating birthdays, playing bingo, having Christmas together, all via Zoom. Um, I also showed how I'm making masks a part of my wardrobe. So I have glitter masks and Montreal Canadian masks and pride masks and you name it. Um, and then Amazing. showing how fun you can have washing your hands. And I said, you know, if you get tired of singing the ABCs, you can always listen to some metal. And uh, it's showing me banging my head while I'm washing my hands. So just trying to convince people, like, just play by the rules so we can all come out of this. And one of the things that I, I, I wanted to ask was, you know, you mentioned the, the different upbringing that you, you had to your siblings. And, and you are, without question, one of the most warm-hearted, kindest people I've ever been lucky enough to, to call a friend. Do you think that you would still have that, that outlook and that warm-hearted nature if you had grown up amidst the, the, the chaos that your uh, siblings grew up with? I think so, because my siblings are pretty kind too. And we mm. get that from my mom. My mother was a, like, my whole personality is my dad's. You know, my dad mm. was outgoing and and a big dreamer and like to be in the spotlight and all of So I get all of that from him and my charm comes from him. My mother was uh, an introvert and she was very quiet, but she was the, the, she was the love of my life. She was the kindest, most loving person. And until the day she died, if I lay my head in her lap, I felt like nothing in this world could ever, ever touch me. And each of us, all seven of her kids, felt like we were her favorite. So mm -hmm. I think I still would have been a kind person. Mm -hmm. But having all that love put on me gave me the confidence to try to push, to be like radically kind, to be aggressively kind. I just thought, you know, if I got this, this is such a gift. I should really try to share it as much as I possibly can. And I remember once hearing an older relative say, well, this is who I am. Like, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm 50 years old, whatever. And, and I remember my mom saying to me, you know, that's not true, right? You can choose to be who you want to be. You, you, you don't have to just accept that you're a certain way. You can make a choice. And so when I was really young, they told me they didn't care what I did for a living. They said, you know, dig a ditch fly a rocket to the moon. That's, it's your life. That Those are your choices to make. But what kind of human being you're going to be, that's our work. And that matters to us. And they told me that I should picture the person that I want to be. And that whenever I make a decision, I should think, is this bringing me closer to that person? Or is it taking me away from her? And I have done that. And, you know, I found myself at 32 being the first Indigenous, well, the first Mi'kmaq person ever hired back at a corporate law firm in Nova Scotia's history. I was the first Indigenous valedictorian of a law school in Canada. And I was 32 years old. I was a corporate lawyer and I was miserable. And I just realized, you know, I am, I am moving away from that person I want to be. So on a Sunday afternoon, I called home and I said, Mom, Dad, brothers and sisters, thank you for all your love and support. I just wanted to let you know that I am leaving the practice of law. And P.S. I just broke up with my boyfriend because I met a woman and I'm in love. Bye-bye. <laughs> Amazing. That is quite a phone call. <laughs> it took them quite a while to catch up to the woman thing because they were like, she's doing what? They said to me, we don't get the decision, but we have noticed that you're losing your sense of humor the longer that you're, you've been a lawyer. And uh, you don't get home to see us anymore. So we know we've raised an intelligent woman. And as always, we'll support you in whatever you want to do. And it was the best thing I ever did. And I'm always telling people, like, it is never too late. I went to law school at 27. I practiced 
law starting at 30. I told my first joke on stage at 32. I started my television career at 40 with a national show, The Candy Show. I started my radio career at 47 with uh, three months of guest hosting Q and then my own national show on CBC. And I got my first book deal at 50. So I can't wait to see what 60 is going to be. I don't know what it is, but I know it's going to be fabulous. <laughs> and that's, and I mean, it, it's it's incredible. And it's and as you say, I mean, it, this is this is your whole experience is is unique and what what you've achieved. But and but we know now, of course, that this has all ended wonderfully and is continuing wonderfully. But but you can't have known when you quit this kind of incredible job that you had worked so hard to get, and of course, I'm sure it was very financially rewarding. Uh, how? Did you make that transition? And, and, and there must have been some fear there that, that this could be a, a terrible mistake. I wasn't worried about it being a mistake because I know that my mistakes are gifts. I know that when I make mistakes, I learn a lot from them. Right. But I was scared to death. So I always tell people, don't like don't think that when I do something like this, I don't feel fear. I was very scared. How am I going to support myself? Um, yeah. You know, and I had to figure that out quickly. So I took a day job with the government as the director of Mi'kmaq education in Nova Scotia. So at least I was doing something that I knew was having a positive impact on my community. Yeah. But Amazing. a long time ago, I had said to my family, when I die, I want one thing written on my tombstone. And I wanted to say, at least I tried. Yeah. So uh, that has always been my motto is, I don't care if I get there, I just want to die trying. So. I am constantly trying to dream a bigger dream for myself. And if it doesn't work out, then I'll try to find out what was I supposed to learn from this. And I'll turn in another direction and try to find where I'm, you know, where I'm going next. As a little kid, my oldest brother, Billy, has passed on now. He died of cancer uh, 22 years ago. But he was 21 when I was born and like a second father to me and an incredible athlete. And a wonderfully kind man. He's this big, huge bodybuilder and biker who was the oh, kindest yeah. person ever. And he was a beautiful skier. And when I was four, he said he was going to teach me how to ski. And he had me in these little blue glitter ski boots and my little red bomber jacket, my sunglasses looking all cool. No front teeth because I'm four. And I'm waiting for my ski lesson. And Billy leaned over. He's a huge man. And he put his hand on my chest and poof. He pushed me down in the snow and I said, well, I thought you were going to teach me how to ski. He said, I am going to teach you how to ski, sweetheart. But first, I'm going to teach you how to get up, because when you learn how to ski, falling is inevitable. But if you know how to get up, you'll ski without fear and you'll be a better skier. Now, at four, I thought he was talking about skiing. <laughs> Twenty two years after he's died, I realized he was teaching me about life. So I have fallen many a times. And I know how to get up. So I'm not scared of the fall. In fact, I try, to, I try to sit in it a bit. You know, people try to rush through the bad times. I think that's a real waste. I think there's some real juice to be had in the rough times. So I try to sit with it for a bit and feel like what I'm supposed to feel. And sometimes I feel like I may not, maybe I don't have what it needs to get up. And when that happens, I put my hand out and I say, listen, I'm, I'm going to need a hand. And, and remarkably... Somebody always comes along and takes my hand and helps me up. And once I get up and I get solid on my feet, I realize now my job is to look around for who else might have a handout, needing a little help getting up. So, you know, you feel the fear, but you've got one precious life to live. You're giving your heart and your body only one time and you can't waste it. You can't spoil that. You know, when I was young, I was an athlete. I was fit. I was beautiful in great shape. And always the fastest, always the strongest. And I thought I would always be. And I had a real judgmental side to me. And I was incredibly fat phobic. I used to ride my older sisters all the time. Why can't you just lose weight? Why are you so fat? What's the problem? Nonstop, relentless. 27, I start getting what I think is a kink in my hip. By the time I'm 35, I can barely walk. They tell me I've got arthritis, that the hip has to come out. At 40, I finally said yes, and they replaced my hip. Once the arthritis started and my athletic life stopped, I started to gain weight at an incredible rate of speed. I'm now about 170 pounds heavier than I was until I was 27. 
I suddenly have so much more empathy. I need somebody to open the door for me because I've got my bag in one hand and my cane in the other. All of a sudden, I'm thinking about those people that can't keep up because all of a sudden, I'm one of them. So I feel like my arthritis, even though I live with daily pain, it was such a gift because it's made me a better person. I'm not judgmental anymore. I I have so much more empathy. I, I speak now about body confidence and I speak about... Um, what it's like to have all that extra weight and how difficult it is to um, to try to get back to health from that. And yeah. I just think, wow, if that hadn't happened to me, I might have lived my whole life not understanding that struggle. So yeah, would I like to wake up every morning without pain? Sure. But since this is what I've got, I have found what it is about it that is a gift. And I try to really concentrate on that. That is such a beautiful outlook and sums up everything that I and everyone adores about you. It's really incredible. Oh, thank you. People say, do you ever think why you when it comes to the the pain thing? And I say, no, I think why not me? Because I have so many gifts. Who's supposed to have this? The homeless indigenous person sleeping on a on a cement sidewalk in Winnipeg in minus 30 degrees? Listen, if this is the only burden I have to carry, given everything else I've got... I'm happy to carry that, you know, like I, that I come home from a gig and my wife is standing there shaking a martini and she wraps me in heating pads and I'm in my comfortable, warm home and she's bringing me things. And I look at her and I say, what do you do when you're homeless and you have this? Like you would kill yourself. You would kill yourself or drink yourself to death because how could you possibly handle it? So I just feel like, you know what, if this is the little burden that I have to carry, I'm happy to carry it because of everything else I get. Incredible, absolutely incredible. I mean, all of those things that you've that you've kind of come through, and and then of course you know conversely of course uh, achieved as well. Um, what advice would you give to someone starting out in this industry or indeed any creative field? Because Canada's a, a hard place anyway to kind of to to do uh, creative jobs. There isn't kind of this built in. Uh, industry like there is in in america or even england to an extent and certainly on on the east coast it's even harder because it isn't it's not something that's necessarily uh i don't know if respect is the word but it's not something which is is offered to young people that that you can be a creative here and be successful um but 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 you did it anyway and and were successful what advice would you give to someone starting out or thinking about that yeah i think there's a couple of things first of all you have to really Spend some time figuring out who you are and then make sure you don't let people move you off that mark. Because quite often in the entertainment industry, there's one thing when you're being creative alone in your room, but as soon as you start being in the industry and being around other people, people try to mold you into what they think is funny or what they think will appeal or what they think will sell. And the thing is, it's really impossible to maintain being somebody else. You have to be you and then wait for the audience to find you because whatever you have, somebody out there wants it. The point is you have to find it. I'll I'll tell you a a funny story. It's a a bit of a side story, but (laughs) my dad, when I was young, my two older sisters had the most giant breasts I had ever seen in my life, like the (laughs) largest natural breasts ever seen. And I had nothing, like not even bee stings. So I was waiting for my boobs to come. Every month I would wait for my boobs to come. 13, 14, 15, no boobs. So finally at 16, my mother said to me, Candy, you're not getting them. They're not coming. You're going to have boobs like me, not like your older sisters. And for some reason at that age, that mortified me. And I, I became obsessed how, what can I do? Can I, I even asked my family doctor, are there plastic surgeons here? Is it possible for me to get a boob job? Like this is like circa 19, like 83 in Northern (laughs) New Brunswick. So one night after supper, my father, who at the time is like 70 says, um, sit down. I want to talk to you about this boob thing, which, oh my God, is the last thing a teenage girl (laughs) wants to hear from her senior citizen father. And I was waiting for him to say, you're beautiful. Because you know how parents just say, oh, you're beautiful to us, which means 
nothing to a teenager. <laughs> but instead, my father said, look, personality-wise, sweetheart, any man gets to know you is going to fall in love. But men are divided into two categories because, of course, I was, I was into boys then. Men are mm -hmm. divided into two categories. There's boob men and there's leg men. Now, a boob man is not going to turn his head when you walk into the room. But, sweetheart, you've got more legs than a bucket of chicken. And, like, <laughs> you're so athletic. They're in such good shape. They go up to your neck. They're always tanned. A, a leg man would crawl over glass to get to you. So instead <laughs> of worrying about your boobs... Why don't you just keep your eyes open for people who are into what you have? Wow. And I remember just like getting up from the table. I walked into my bedroom. I had a full length mirror. I stripped down to my underwear. I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, oh, my God, he's right. My legs are fantastic. <laughs> and I went out and I bought a bunch of short skirts and I never worried about my boobs again. And Amazing. it became sort of um, a mantra that I use in terms of. I just have to find people who want what I've got. So, you know, a great example, when I was asked to audition for Q, they offered me three days. It's, they were live auditions on air. This was right after Gomeshi got fired. And they said, you know, we want you to fly up to Toronto, go live on air for three days. I said, yeah, thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity. I need five days. Hmm. And Buddy's like, uh, lady, we don't even really know you that well up here. And most people are just thankful to get an audition. I said, I understand that. Be that as it may, I am a slow burn. So I'm going to be mm -hmm. okay on Monday, but I will be great by Friday. But I'm going to need those full five days to, to catch my stride. And yeah. he just kind of laughed and said, all right, I'll give you the five days. I went up. I swung for the fences. I did the best I could do. I left nothing in my tank. I was really proud of what I had done. The listener feedback was fantastic. But I sensed something about the way that that show worked. Yeah. And I said to the guy, just so you know, if I got this show, some things would have to change to suit me. Because Young Omeshi was the same age as me, but he was a Persian man and I'm an indigenous woman. And that is not a one size fits all show. And <laughs> I am already a fully established entertainer, personality and person. So I would need some things to change to suit me. I got a call a few weeks later and they said, you know, you had the best listener feedback of everyone who auditioned, but you're not getting the show because we want someone who we can mold to fit the show as opposed to the show molding to fit them. And I said, fair enough, because I know myself enough to know I can't be something I'm not. And apparently yeah. neither could Shad. Because that didn't last that long, right? That's who they get it to. And, and you have to be brave enough to know that and to say, I got to let that one go by. And just wait for the next train because I was sad. I said the whole country heard me go for that. And now the whole yeah. country has seen that I have failed. And then two hours later, Jonathan Torrens called me, better known as J-Rock on the Trailer Park Boys. <laughs> and he said, thank God you didn't get Q. We wrote a character in every episode of season 10 named Candy with you in mind. And when we heard you got that audition, we thought, oh, she gets the show. She can't do Trailer Park Boys. So I went from feeling sad to two weeks later, I'm sitting next to Tom Arnold and Snoop Dogg talking about sneakers um, in a little trailer park in Truro. And it was a, that experience was fantastic. So you have to stick to who you are. Be coachable. Be open yeah. to getting advice. But make sure that you are not being given advice from someone who doesn't have skill. So yeah. I, I know that like in my athletic career, I was frustrated at a certain point because I knew I had it in me to be better, but I couldn't get there. And then a coach came that had so much more skill than the coach I was working with. And he took me to the next level. And when I started the candy show, I said, you know, here's how I want to do everything. And the director that I chose on a recommendation from someone. He saw me, he knew who I was, he knew what I was trying to do, but he pushed me. He pushed me to be better, to do, to do things I wasn't comfortable with, but all in trying to get me to be more candy, not to get me to be less candy, to be more candy. And if you watch season one of The Candy Show to season five of The Candy Show, the improvement in my performance is astronomical. 
And that is all thanks to Trevor Grant because he was a director that had the skill to take me to the next level. So I've become very acute at quickly realizing, "Uh uh-oh, this person doesn't get me. And also they don't have the skill to to give me anything. They can't take me anywhere further. I got to move along. I can't take, I can't let these people mess around with my brand. And then when I do find someone who I think, oh yeah, they get me and they can take me to the next level, I hook my wagon up. And that is, I think, the most important advice I could give to someone starting out. Because if you are too malleable, the very thing that makes you special, someone is going to polish off you. And that, you know, I said to them at Q, I'm an Atlantic Canadian. And when you hear me talk, you know I'm from Atlantic Canada. (laughs) And I never want to sound like I'm from the BBC. Right? Like (laughs) I am never going to pretend to be that. Because I am a North Shore girl. And that's what I sound like. And that's the very thing that people like about my voice. So I can't let you buff that off me. That is who I am. And, and that, I think, I've watched so many people who I think, oh, they have this special little spark and then someone snuffs it out, trying to make them more conform, trying to make them look more like what was successful on TV last year. But it's always the person who holds on to what is special about them to the thing that makes them different and lets that shine, those are the people that find success. So true. Such profound and wise words to live by. I can't thank you enough. This is one of the first podcasts I've ever done that has uh, really not just inspired me, but brought tears to my eyes numerous times. I I can't thank you enough, Candy. Oh, that is so nice, James. I wish we were in the room together so we could hug. (laughs) I know, I know. I miss your hugs. The pleasure is all mine, and I'm blasting glitter-covered candy kisses to you and all your listeners. (laughs) Likewise, and I will see you soon, and when we do, we will make the hug last for a year. Sounds good. (laughs) Thank you, Candy. I will see you soon. Thank you for listening to Mullinger Meets Canadians. If you like greatness, creativity, being inspired, laughing, or just love Canada as much as I do, then this is the podcast for you. So please do subscribe and review the show now. And be sure to follow Candy on Twitter and Instagram at The Candy Show and check out her website, thecandyshow.com. Further details can be found on the Edit website. That's maritimeedit.com. I will see you next time. Podstarter. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.